In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. Surely the people are grass. These words which we just heard, we should recognize from the fourth Sunday in Advent, when we sing the familiar and I think beloved hymn, Comfort, Comfort, Ye My People. This hymn is really just a summary of Isaiah chapter 40, the Old Testament lesson for that day. Comfort, yes, comfort my people. God commands the prophet to cry, speak comfort to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sins I cover and her warfare now is over. It's a beautiful chapter of the Bible. It's filled with pure gospel, pure comfort for sinners who mourn over their sorrow's load, that is, who repent of their sins. God will change her pining sadness into ever-springing gladness. And what a fitting theme to remember again today on Laetare Sunday. Laetare means rejoice, taken from our intro it. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, O ye who love her. It is Jerusalem's pining sadness that Jesus turns into gladness. Gladness is given to those who love Jerusalem. Those who love Jerusalem are those who remember that their days are like grass, as Psalm 103 says. Those who don't remember this don't love Jerusalem. God doesn't tell anyone to comfort anyone who doesn't love Jerusalem, who doesn't acknowledge that he is grass, who doesn't repent of his sins. That's why when we come to where God is publicly speaking, it is extremely important that he tell us to repent of our sins so that we might know that his comfort is intended for us. Jerusalem is the holy Christian church on earth where the gospel is preached in its truth and purity and where the sacraments are rightly administered. She is from above because that is where she was created by God through water and the word. She is from above, but she lives here below where she gives birth to God's children through the same holy bath that we witnessed this morning. A child of God was born today by becoming a child of Jerusalem. He was made God's child in heaven in order to hear God's word on earth. Now we could have baptized him in the hospital, and I was tempted. But I waited with some cautious anxiousness to do it here today so that you could all see it and rejoice with me and with the whole Christian church of God who has gathered this morning to hear the voice of Jesus. Your shepherd is this child's shepherd too. And his shepherd is yours. 
You are branches of the same vine. One is not born into God's family in heaven without being born into God's family on earth. This new birth makes us free because the church is free. She is the heavenly Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. She is from above. We are born from above. St. Paul distinguishes the Jerusalem, as he says, which is, which now is, he says, and the Jerusalem above. And by this distinction, he's simply teaching us the, the difference between the outward appearance of holiness and the genuine Christian faith, which is truly and inwardly holy. He is distinguishing trust in works from trust in mercy. To rely on the outward appearance is to rely on your own merit. This is bondage. To rely on your own merits is to rely on what you can produce by your own travail and by your own power. That is Hagar, whose children are born into slavery. But to rely on the word of God is to rely on Christ's merit. And this is freedom. It is the one who cannot bear, who rejoices in what God has promised. Our association with the church saves us. Not because of our outward participation in the things of God, not because of some official membership in some church office somewhere, or because of how many dollars we give or oxen we slaughter. No, our association with the church saves us because it is in his church that Christ creates and sustains faith in his mercy and forgiveness. To trust in what we do in order to be the church is slavery. To trust in what God does and gives is freedom. Being free doesn't mean you own yourself. That's what people think. What do you expect? They're slaves. Owning yourself is slavery to a cruel master that you can't even escape from. Think of that. That's why people commit suicide so much, because they've been taught this false doctrine that they own themselves. Fine. Run away. To be enslaved to your own appetites and pride and false opinions. Good Lord, deliver us. Oh no. Being free doesn't mean we belong to ourselves. And if you believe it, you're wrong. I was just told this the other day by some lady who told me to put on a mask when I was outside. She says, I, I, ah, whatever. <laughs> Why did I get off on that? You know? There are a lot of slaves. And they're convinced that they tell you what to do because they own themselves. That's what she said. But they do not own themselves. And if they own themselves, it is the degree to which they love their own righteousness, and this is the only place they know how to get it, by obeying their master. And all under the illusion that they are their own masters. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. No, to be free doesn't mean we belong to ourselves, but that we belong to one who is good and gracious. He says you can't serve two masters. That means you also can't serve none. You will be ruled. You will either serve one who gives life to the dead or you will serve one who teaches you to find your life in the things that kill you. Our Lord Jesus rules us by forgiving us our sins, by providing us what we need to remain in the faith and by teaching us to grow in wisdom by knowing and loving him better. 
He is made our Lord, and we are made his children through holy baptism, where he washes our sins away and works faith in our heart to trust his holy word. We remember our baptism and make use of it by gathering at church to hear the enduring word of God. We call upon his name, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It is the name into which we were baptized that gives us the right to pray. We gather with sinners who mourn and cry for needed mercy. This is what it means to love Jerusalem. It means go to church. This is where all things are free, bread without cost and peace without price to you. You don't earn it. It's free. Your works don't earn it. But you work because you love it. You love him who gives you rest. And you love her through whom this rest is given to you. Christians love Christ. Christians love the church whom Christ serves. You find consolation in her bosom because it is to his church on earth that God has entrusted that which alone can satisfy your needs for grace and pardon and give you everlasting life. Or where else will you find freedom from slavery? People think that freedom is not having to work. Well, they're wrong. Again, they're slaves. We work. We get out of bed. We forego sleep. We spend time in God's home with God's children and count it as worth more even than time in our own homes with our own children. For our wives give birth to grass and bondage. But it is here where we were given birth to the glorious liberty of the children of God. We do all of this. We drive to church. We engage our minds and sing and listen. Thank you, by the way. That was just so beautiful to hear all of you sing that hymn. I believe it. To be surrounded by people who also believe it. Is there any greater pleasure? And then we say goodbye to money that can purchase other pleasures. Money that we've worked hard for. And we, we say goodbye to it in order to support the preaching of the gospel. We come to here. We work. Even infant boys have to work for the milk they desire. What they get is free, but they must desire it. As Jesus said right after our gospel lesson ends, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to everlasting life. He tells us to work. Free men work. Free children work. But they work in order to obtain what they cannot pay for. What is theirs by right of birth, they work to get what is given for free. Now, not to work for this food is nothing more than not to come to the place where the prophet tells you to come, where he tells you to rejoice in the comfort of the gospel that is paid for by the innocent suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Our freedom is not found in owning ourselves and working for ourselves. Our freedom is found in being owned by Jesus, who takes possession of us through the word he speaks. The one thing worth working for is the one thing our work cannot earn. Those who are bidden to rejoice with Jerusalem are those who gather to hear the gospel. 
They who don't gather to hear the gospel are not bidden to rejoice because they don't love her. They don't love their mother. They're bidden to come, but they're not bidden to rejoice until they do. Those who do not mourn with Jerusalem are not asked to rejoice with her because they are rejoicing in other things instead. For food that perishes, because they don't know or believe that God knows what he's doing when he tells you to lay aside your labor and to come to hear his word. Why don't we? Because we don't believe it. That's why. Jesus tells us not to do this. If there is gladness, true gladness, that only God gives and which God alone blesses. It is gladness that is known only in the forgiveness of sins, which we receive only by faith. Faith that must be strengthened and fed. Such gladness is known only by those who leave earthly cares behind and come here. The season of Lent is a season that warns us of the spiritual dangers that abound where the word of God is not heard and meditated upon. The threats of the devil should prompt us to increase our devotion to God's word, which alone protects us. This is why we have an extra midweek service during Lent. It's to help you do this. And this is the theme of Lent. On this particular Sunday, however, we find a slight reprieve from this sober warning typical of all other Sundays in this season. If you look at a fancy church calendar, or maybe a fancy church where they bother to buy all the pyramids and stoles and stuff, you'll see that much like Gaudete in Advent, which also means rejoice, when the candle turns pink, so this Sunday's color is also pink or rose rather than the dark purple or violet of Lent. We have no devil in today's text. We have no stern warning. We have no one crying out for mercy or in great need. They don't even complain. We have Jesus simply filling the most basic need of any man before anyone even asks. He feeds 5,000 men plus their families with five loaves of barley and two fish. And he gathers what remains into 12 baskets. This is the number of the tribes of Israel or of the 12 apostles. It's the number that symbolizes the church, our holy mother, Jerusalem. And by this we learn that Jesus is able to provide also for his church on earth. He who did not spare his own son is able with him also freely to give us all things. He who daily provides all your material needs will surely tend to what is more precious and important. Do you believe it? Well, he does. And the man who is your Savior is the eternal God who rules all things, causes the grass to grow and the flowers to bloom, and whose breath blows upon them so that they fade away. Now I know, I suppose, that no one comes to hear the gospel who doesn't know and dread in some way the threats of the devil. You don't want to go to hell. 
His wiles and cunning surely drive us here, right? Good. And they should. Satan has marked his prey and plots to deceive us. What our wonderful gospel lesson teaches us today is that we are not driven to Jesus solely by fear of what is chasing us, nor even just by the guilt of our past. We are driven to Jesus not just by sorrow that only he can still, but by joy that only he can fill. And he does. There is a tremendously positive reason to come to church and hear the gospel and sing the hymns and receive the Lord's Supper. It is the promise of joy. It is pleasure and satisfaction and genuine happiness. You eat because if you don't, you starve, right? Yeah, right. That's what someone who says he's in pretty bad shape, and he had better eat, for sure. But you eat because food is delicious and you know it. And in some very real sense, this is exactly why, and an important reason why you should eat. Bread is the best. No one has ever invented anything more delicious to eat than warm sourdough and butter. If I don't eat, I die. But I eat not merely not to die, right? But because entirely, but almost entirely because of the joy there is in tasting and being filled. And see how God accomplishes Salvation from whatever it is you're afraid of by working in your heart primarily the desire for what is positive. Like what St. Peter writes, desire the pure milk of the word, desire it. That's a command. Like newborn babes, desire milk so that you may grow thereby if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. What a command. Desire. Want this. Do this. Find satisfaction for your craving in this. Crave what you do not naturally have a taste for. Taste it. Want more. And you will indeed, if you have tasted already. Unless you have tasted in vain. This kid here, right there, wasn't, he wasn't drinking. He was a lazy, they call him a wimpy white boy. That's what the nurses called him. I don't know if that's universal. And I remember holding him, just telling him, you have to eat. He had blo- low blood sugar, he wasn't breathing well. And it's just a fraction of the fear and terror that so many mothers have gone through. But it was scary. I couldn't convince the little kid, if you don't eat, you die. I couldn't convince him that, of that. What he needed was to taste. What he's driven by right now in his heart is desire for what he has tasted. And as he grows in stature, he'll learn what to run from. He'll learn what to flee from. He'll learn what he finds refuge from. But right now, he knows where his father's house is and he knows who his mother is. He knows where Jesus feeds us with the bread of life and gives us what we have tasted. We don't fear starvation and utter destruction with our earthly pleasures, therefore. Rather, we fear that God would turn his face from us. He knows what he is doing. And yet this often happens with our spiritual nourishment. 
Do you not fear spiritual starvation? Is your faith fine? Do you not fear spiritual destruction? Is your faith strong? Well, we leave all other Sundays in Lent to rebuke such foolishness. Today we rebuke this foolish, spiritual foolish sloth from a different direction. If there is cause to mourn because the devil is hounding you and seeking to rob you and tempt you and harm you and you mourn in repentance as often as you notice he has gotten the better of you. And dear Christians, see also your cause to mourn because you lack the desire to have what Jesus gives. Such lack of desire is evidence that the devil has already won. It is evidence of slavery that works for food that perishes in the use rather than freedom that works for joy of what only Jesus can give and never runs out of. Those who follow Jesus into the wilderness did so because the bread was free. They thought it was great because they didn't have to work for it. This is freedom, they figured. Not having to work for their food, but they were wrong. And not simply because they thought freedom wasn't getting material things without having to work, but because they thought freedom meant no working. Even the manna had to be gathered and milled and baked. Were they not free? But they were slaves in their heart. God sets us free by giving us work to do. This is the work of God, that you believe in Jesus. Believe. Rely on him for every good thing. Desire what he gives you. Rejoice in salvation. It is a sin not to do so. It is a sin to obey. Not to do this is to be under the law. Surely the people are grass. And yet the Son of God became flesh. The Word which endures forever became grass. He joins our bodies. He joins what our bodies need. And what our Father knows we need. He joins that to what our souls need. And what endures forever. The Word becomes flesh. And he feeds us with his promises, and so also by his promise with his own body and blood. And to teach us to desire this, look how gentle and kind he is. He does not demand that they come out. He leads them to where there is much grass which cannot feed them. He leads them to where their natural powers are shown for what they are, in order to teach them not to seek joy in themselves, but in him him who supplies what is most needful. He teaches them to trust that God can take care of whatever it is they left behind. But here is what he supplies, what gives eternal life. Jesus led them out to where there was much grass in order to teach them the value of their work and righteousness. But he showed in his power the value of what is more enduring than what fills our stomach and adds spice to life. It is the value of being reconciled to God and having eternal life in his Son. If you will find the true heavenly church, you must find it by outward appearances. You must find it where the grass is gathered up, where people gather who confess what they are made of, who confess their sins, who don't claim to store in their hearts or anywhere else the bread that fell 
the other day, but rather know that we are fed only by what God supplies. And as those 12 baskets were gathered up, this is to teach you where it is that God that God stores and provides for you what it is you need for tomorrow. We do not make Jesus our king. He does not become our king by doing what we tell him to do. He doesn't become our king by doing what God has always done for you. He becomes our king by freeing us from worry and concern. And we don't crown him. No, he is crowned by his father on the cross where he bears our sin in order to forgive it. He is crowned by his father when he has given all authority in heaven and earth to rule us in mercy and continually serve his church. Here is his kingship. Here is his gracious reign over you, where he teaches you his word, forgives you all your sins, and gives you peace, so that you, with me and all of us, may pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In Jesus' name, amen.